Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 54. World events have once again conspired to interrupt the flow of things happening in Southern Africa, and that was by the early 1800s. The British were going to withdraw from the Cape of Good Hope, and their move began far away in Ireland. As part of the price for Irish agreement to parliamentary union with Britain in 1800, Prime Minister William Pitt had promised to liberate Roman Catholics from the restrictions of their civil liberties imposed since the 16th century. 300 years of English yoke through Protestantism was seen through a very religious and nationalist lens in Ireland. The future of the Cape was therefore in great doubt. Lord Nelson was also one of those voicing his opinion that the peninsula was of no real use. So much for the constant warning by others that it was a strategic corner of Africa. One of the world's greatest naval commanders regarded Cape Town as a waste of time and money. The new British government of Henry Addington, he that would give his name to a Durban hospital, was comprised of what historian Frank Welsh calls a group of notorious nonentities. They were trying to quell serious civil unrest at home and were also tiring of the long war against France and had no qualms about giving up a colony whose expense had been enormous. Diplomacy was the order of the start of the new century, leading to the Treaty of Amiens in 1802, after which the Cape was restored to Holland. Unfortunately for the British, not the Holland of the House of Orange, but a Holland ruled by the newly formed Batavian Republic. The French had worked hard behind the scenes and out front, to ensure that this new republic would be given all the rights Paris thought they deserved. There's always a republican lurking somewhere, except in those days, republican meant hot-headed revolutionary. Liberté, equality, fraternité, berets, storming the Bastilles, killing the bankers, seizing the land, burning the old books, rewriting new laws, destroying bastions of religion, power to the people, wash, rinse, recycle. It appears modern republicanism, liberté, equality, fraternité, has morphed into libation, idolatry, and fratricide, although perhaps this should be mentioned in a whisper. The time of 1800 was the true time of the sovereignty of the individual, which is gone. The tornadoes of time have blown that away. This moment needs more reflection, so to avoid tautology, it's time to head back to the tip of Africa. Back in sunny southern Africa, circa 1800, great powers were beginning to emerge across the landscape. And extremely sunny it was, in 1800, because parts of southern Africa were gripped by a terrible drought. Across the northern regions of the Cape and the Matkwaland and along the Orange River, the Afrikaner gang led by Khoisan leader Yonka Afrikaner was going village to village, homestead to homestead, plundering as they went. The severe drought meant that the Boer commandos couldn't operate effectively, so it increased banditry across the frontiers. But it also meant that groups of Khoi and Khoisan who'd been trying to disentangle themselves from both the Trek Boers and the British, and even the local Tsana people, were forced to operate along that great river. The quick forays across Bushmanland towards the Cape were now impossible for the Afrikaners because there was no water on the way. The government decided to send an expedition to the massive Tswana town of Klapping, which took off in 1801, and they found it almost impossible to barter cattle from the Tswana on the way. The local people could not afford to lose even one beast. This drought at the start of the 19th century was so terrible. What they did find was signs of anarchy caused by both the drought and the Afrikaner groups who descended on the Griqua and the Twana, wiping out villages as they went. I have the diary of William Somerville, who jointly led that expedition with Chief Commissioner P.J. Truter, and an interesting 200 or so pages it is. 
They discovered that Yonka Afrikaner was now pretty much the ruler of the Middle Orange, keeping the extent of the Kharip, as the area was known, for 500 miles in terror. Somerville's prescient pen has been buried over time, resurrected here and there since his notes were rediscovered in the mid-1970s, which is a pity because he was one of the first colonists to set eyes on the Tana city of Klaping. It was vast, up to 20,000 people lived there. To give you an idea of the scale, at the same time, Cape Town had around 5,000 residents, colonial slave and koi. Somerville was also really important because his story intersects the history of this region over a period of sudden change, and he took lots of notes. In August 1799, for example, Somerville joined Major General Dundas during the height of the First Frontier Wars fought by the British. Somerville travelled to Ngrika's great place at the time of Kunrad the base and was one of those who escaped Amatosa King's erratic behaviour. Somerville was then made Assistant Resident Commissioner at Graaf Reinet in 1800, sent to help the ailing Mainier, who we've heard a great deal about. He was also a trained doctor and had an unusual way of seeing the world, part science, part art. So the new Assistant Resident Commissioner visited the Tarka district in July 1800, where he wrote obligatory reports. However, it was the Cape's dependence on the frontier districts for a considerable portion of its food supply that meant officials had to spend a lot of time travelling around, shaking hands and observing incidents. There were now a few thousand colonials across the entire Cape Colony being directly supported by these trek boers and traders, which was the reason it was costing the British government quite a bit to keep their garrison going. Lord Nelson's comments were very much the perception of the majority. Why bother with this little African backwater when France was willing to negotiate a new treaty? Give this place back to the Dutch and just make sure we can stop there to buy victuals for our fleets. Dispatch the Cape of Good Hope back to the Dutch and good riddance was the British view. But just before the Cape was returned to the Dutch, Somerville ended up on this vast trek all the way to the great Tuana city of Klaping between October 1801 and mid-1802, just before the British were to leave in 1803. So you have to feel for him, here he was, collecting intelligence for a soon-to-be-abandoned cause, but of course the English would decide pretty quickly that giving Cape Town away was not the cleverest maritime strategy. So the drought and the effect of the 1799 war had drastically reduced livestock and pressure on the pasturage within the colony following the evacuation of almost all southeastern Grafreinet. Furthermore, there was a real danger of famine at the settlement back in Cape Town at this time as a result both of the lack of agricultural nuss amongst Western Cape farmers and of crop failures caused by droughts, then the plague of locusts in 1796 and 1800. The authorities had to economise in the public use of wheat and other grains. Another unfavourable harvest in February 1801 led to the appointment of a special and supreme commission consisting of the lieutenant governor and several other leading officials to advise on further relief measures. Its first recommendation was to import grain, but long term the remedy was to send an expedition across the Orange River to barter cattle from the Tswana. The biggest issue was replacing the draft oxen lost by the grain farmers during the 1800 drought. The raiding Yonka Afrikaners had also destabilized the supply and pushed the Namakwa, the Enikwa and the Korana as far east as Priska today. The expedition to the Biriqua, as it's known, think Krikwa, left Cape Town on October 1st, 1801 under P.J. Truter, who was formerly employed by the Dutch East India Company. He was to become known by the Tlapping Tswana as Angogora, or ugly face because he had a gloomy look in his eyes along with extremely bushy thick eyebrows. 
Somerville joined. By now, he was also the esteemed commissary of lands and woods at Algoa Bay, in addition to all his other posts. He was the second commissioner of the expedition. The secretary was Samuel Daniel, the artist, who had been Somerville's secretary in Grafrenet in April 1800. Later, he would produce an album of watercolours or aquatints called African Scenery and Animals, and much of that work was based on the drawings Daniel did on this expedition. Fifteen-year-old Pietras Bochatz was the assistant secretary and kept a journal under Truta's supervision. No mucking around with playstations in 1801 for young teens. As soon as they could carry a musket, they'd be pushed out into the big wide world. The superintendent of the expedition's wagons was T.C. Schultz, joined by three government slaves called Jan, Willem and Antony. A koi called Hendrik Boy and a Greek called Hannes completed the Cape Town-based group. It would swell in size later, augmented by seven Rochofeld Trekboers, joined by the Koi servants and local Phil Conet, who acted as escorts. But they were a wild lot, and by the time the expedition returned to the Orange from the north, these fine Rochefelders were fired. So, before the Trek departed, Commissioner Somerville wrote in his diary that the entire expedition would take three months, but ended up taking seven. That meant they were dependent on hunting for the pot most of the time and relied on trading grains with local people and farmers. Just to give you some idea of what it meant at this time to travel this sort of trail, the intended route was through the natural passage afforded across Van Riebeck's mountain range of Africa, as he called it, through the Rudersandkloof, which is Tulbach, then via the Witzenbach and Mostatshoek, or Mitchell's Pass today, through the Skirverberg to Ceres. At least, that was the plan. However, at Rudersand they found the pass impracticable for loaded wagons and followed the line of the Breda River to modern-day Worcester. Then they turned north through the Karoo Poort in the Witterbach Mountains and over the Rochefeld Mountains. On the way, most farmers were welcoming, but Gerrit Visser at the Tankwa River, who was supposed to accompany the travellers, was unwell. He lived in the middle of Rochefeld. Somerville describes his meeting with Visser in his journal. October 11th. After two hours travelling, we reached the base of the lofty mountain over which the pass is made that leads into that elevated flat called the Roggefeld, he wrote. At the summer habitation of a farmer named Fisser, in the neighbourhood of the bottom of the mountain, we expected to find all peasants collected who were to accompany us, and escort, according to appointment. And what was perhaps of equal vitality, there was every reason to believe that Fisser himself, who had travelled quite frequently towards the Orange River, from his knowledge of the Bushman, might be able to give us important intelligence. The season, however, was now come when the severity of the winter being over, the summits of the Roggefeld again became habitable, and Fisser had already removed to his summer abode in a state of health which rendered him unable to accompany us on our journey. It took Somerville's trek party from one in the afternoon to six that evening to ascend into the tableland of the middle Roggefeld, where they lagered for that night. The next day was bright and hot. October 12. The drought was so intense and of such continuance that many sources of water hitherto reckoned constant were dried up. The locusts destroyed in great measure the growing crop of the last year, and what was spared was destroyed by the herds of elants and other antelopes, which the want of water in the more remote districts draw to the abodes of men which had been by them chosen from the same cause. The plague amongst horses killed many. The soil was poor here, and most farmers had sheep, not cattle. There was also no real community ethos amongst these men, as Somerville noted. They have no relief from the daily fare of mutton, which they 
subsists solely upon without even the common relish of salt. Some of the more fortunate in their crops, instead of assisting their neighbours, are exacting the exorbitant price of six, seven, or eight sheep for a bag of wheat. This is quite an interesting observation about life on the frontier. So much for the ethos of love thy neighbour, the very root of Christian belief. When the chips were down, these farmers deployed a Darwinian evolutionist attitude of only the strong will survive. But on the 16th, frost covered the ground. Night excessively cold, writes Somerville. The nights of 16, 17, 18 were very cold. Ice was seen upon some water in a pale quarter of an inch thick. It was the arrival finally at the Suck River beyond the colonial boundary, and then on the southern bank of the Khrip, as it's now known, the Orange River, that Somerville's expedition began to run into the unusual suspects of this region. They rolled onto the southern bank on November 1st, and two days later crossed the Great River at Priska's Drift. The temperature was now in the mid-30s centigrade, and a hot wind was blowing, and things did not go well. Seven of the wagons crossed safely using the ford, the technique used to keep things dry was to lift the baggage inside each wagon on spurs of wood, allowing the river to flow through. Both sides of this ford, though, were flanked by deep pools, so any misstep was disastrous. And unfortunately, there was a misstep. The eighth wagon was drawn by bullocks, which took fright in the middle of this large, powerful river and tried to turn around. They slipped into one of these deep pools, and the Khoisan drivers managed to free all by cutting their yoke, but one bullock drowned. He was supper that night. They were forced to leave the wagon midstream until the next day when the quarry drivers dived into the river and swam with what Somerville calls great agility and are so confident of their safety that they commit themselves without dread to the most rapid parts of the river. To get across, the quarry sand would float upon a dried stem of willow around eight feet long, in the centre of which a peg is inserted which they lay hold of, half the beam being consequently before the hand and the other passing under the belly and between their legs. That's almost like surfing the orange, who knew? They ferry a sheep over with great facility in this way. Some sheep had drowned trying to swim across, and it was then that Somerville experienced the unique Khoisan culture use of sheep fat. The greatest delicacy is the melted fat, with which they glut themselves and then grind the remainder between two stones with powdered red ochre to smear their bodies with. This is the traditional and ancient use of ochre in the region, a kind of sunscreen, insect repellent and body art all wrapped up in one. It took two full days to extract this wagon from the Orange River. Such were the difficulties of trekking about the middle of Rochefeld and the Orange River in 1801. Once across, the wagons turned northeast towards the Kharip River and Somerville's koi driver was promptly stung by a scorpion from three to four inches in length. This caused some distress, with those stung taking up to three days to recover fully from the pain, the numbness, and the effect that the poison had on the nervous system. A few days later, Somerville described the burial of a Korah chief, writing that when he dies, he is buried in a pit in the center of the huts in full attire with his leathern cloak, ornaments of copper and iron rings around his wrists, also bracelets of rhinoceros hide, beads, quiver, and arrows with his assegais are laid in the grave with his bowstring, then all the males in succession sound his reed pipe over the body. Then the body was buried and a bow would be stuck in the earth over it as a kind of cross. The Korah would tattoo the arms by sticking chips of dry reed into the skin 
Then they had set fire to these reeds and burned them out, which leaves a tiny third-degree burn mark. Amongst the lads, a trial of fortitude. Another strange pastime recorded by Somerville amongst the Cora was the cutting of the pinky. The males would have the first joint of the little finger of the right hand, and the females the left cut off at a week or two old. Finger mutilation was also practiced by the San, but the origin and motive remains a slight mystery. More about that in future podcasts. So, by the 7th of November they were heading past Modefontein, or Fool Fountain, as it was called then. A little further, they passed the Grip, and then they ran into young Cock, described as half Koi, who traded ivory and read the Bible to locals in a kind of strange combination of commerce and religion, but later he would be murdered, who heard about Mr. Cock previously. On Sunday the 8th of November, they discovered missionary William Edwards and his wife living on a large plain along with another member of the London Missionary Society called J.J. Kirshner. There are about 400 people collected together, composed of bastards, hottentots and corals, writes Somerville. These people had huddled together because of the depredations caused by Yonko Africana, but there were other suspicious people lurking about. Take Jakob Krier, a former metal forger who, with his brother Karl, had escaped from life imprisonment on Robben Island, and they were living beyond the reach of colonial retribution. They were fascinating, instructing anyone who would listen that God Almighty had sent them to vindicate the coy of their rights, which were based on the manufacture of gunpowder. Another escapee of interest and distinctly unusual suspect was the man known as Stephanus the Pole. He came to be Jewish as well as Muslim, quoting the Quran and the Old Testament simultaneously and then throwing in a bit of Roman Catholicism, Christianity and a kind of wild millenarian inclusive philosophy. Whenever Stephanus the Pole felt the need to rob, raid, rape and pillage, he'd use divine script he'd learnt in the Cape to reinforce these rites. Somerville was outraged. Only such as he finds useful to answer every purpose of villainy and debauchery, the recital of which would be disgraceful, huffed Somerville. He pretends to hold converse with a deity who in his dreams issues him mandates. The gratification of the most depraved sensuality is the common subject of these inspirations. It sounds like the making of an excellent cult, unless you were his victim, of course. Such a beginning as this may one day create the most distressing consequences to the deluded savages and to the colony, warned our travelling doctor. Stephanus the Pole and the slightly bizarre Kriya siblings were not alone. Jan Blum, the half-German who had inherited the leadership of the Korana clan from his father, was also raiding along the river at this point. An amazing note in Somerville's journal needs to be mentioned. He writes of how blazes of fire were seen, falling stars every night and sometimes during the day. The vast flat expanse in the clear air meant that meteorites could be seen during daylight hours, while at night these showers put on a display which the travellers would watch, almost as their own private light show out there in the dusty beauty of the northern Cape Felt. By now they were close to what is called Posmasburg today, around 180 kilometres east of Uppington. The travellers came upon a small hill where the Koras mined metallic ore. They traded this ore and used it to smear upon their bodies. It reflected the sun and created an intense effect, as you can imagine, a psolytic iron formation of the Transvaal group. This iron was already being traded as far away as the Zurfeld and Amakosa land, as it was known, where smiths would work it into askais and hoes. Little did these men know 
that they'd trekked over one of the most valuable diamond-bearing areas on earth in what would become the city of Kimberley, and they didn't know. With that, it's time to halt our short description of the long trek into the interior. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to make contact, you can do so through my website, desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com or direct message me on Twitter, at deslatham. Until next, it's goodbye and koi, and forgive my poor accent to those who speak this language, but here goes. Classy rock, cool, right?